It's the 17th of June, 2022. Welcome to the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with RoomNow.com. This week, we're catching up. We've had two weeks of content on the website that we haven't discussed here. We last week discussed my top 10 from ULAR 2022. So we're past ULAR, although you'll see ULAR content really, I guess, throughout the month because we had so much of it. Uh, And we're going to now review some of the, I think, the tweet-worthy studies and reports that we covered on Room now in the last 14 days. Um, Something came up the other day, a discussion of rheumatologists and telemedicine. And I put out a tweet that I think I need to say again. Although rheumatology ranks second or third amongst all the specialties in their use of telemedicine, the vast majority of rheumatologists have punted and given up on telehealth. It was vitally important in May through July of 2020 when we used it to survive, when we couldn't go to the clinic and everyone was wearing a mask um, in their closets and trying to avoid the bug. But as we got back into practice, most of us gave up on telehealth and viewed it as a non-player. Um, yet we still do rank second or third. Amazingly, psychiatry, 50% of all visits right now in psychiatry nationwide are for telehealth. Rheumatology is very well built for telehealth because you're a cognitive discipline, you're a pattern identification discipline, you're a visual discipline, and yeah, you can't do a swollen joint cam and rashes may not quite be the same, but Honestly, for follow-up visits, it's a no-brainer. I think to give up on telehealth would be a gigantic mistake. Um, You should develop it, is what I'm saying. Uh, A study of 31 systemic JIA patients looked at those who had systemic chronic disease and also those who were in remission on or off medicine. They showed that IL-18 levels in the serum um, were correlated with disease activity. More importantly, impaired IL-18 signaling uh, of NK cells and the, genera- and the phosphorylation of NK cells was impaired in patients who also had disease activity, especially systemic. And that may very well end up being a biomarker in systemic JIA. RA patients, you know, they are doing well until they fall. And the stats on RA patients who fall are really not well known. This study of 228 patients with a range of from the 20s to the 80s in age showed that 20, 20% had at least one fall. And that's a surprising amount to me. We don't often ask that question, do you fall, and ask them why. And usually the why is often because, well, i clumsy, I tripped, my, they rearranged the furniture. But honestly, it's often for a lot of other reasons, uh, including pain and disease activity. Um, and, and mechanical problems. The risk factors for fall were age, elevated hack, low um, f- uh, fix-it scale, um, and I think that's a measure of fragility. Um, that's a fragility measure. And basically a one-leg standing test, meaning ask patients to stand in front of you. You can do a Romberg test. You can do a one-leg standing test and see how well they can stand on one leg. That had, those People who had that number impaired or that test impaired had a two-fold higher elevation. It's a good screening tool that you should think about using. Um, another study from Canada looked at... Um, no, it's actually not from Canada. It's a, it was a small study of 34 patients who were biologic naive, um, and they were starting uh, abatacept. 
And actually, these were also patients who had established disease. So some were biologic naive. I think some had, um, no, they were all biologic naive. They had either early or established disease. That's the deal. And um, they were able to achieve remission mainly in the early patients as opposed to established disease, 47%, mainly only half in the early patients uh, versus 30, uh, 23%. But they did show that there were predictive biomarkers that would be found at baseline. At baseline, having lower IL-6 levels, less than 8.4 uh, uh, picograms per ml. So we don't really have what, know what that correlates to in CRP. They didn't put that in there. And we don't usually measure IL-6. But you can measure IL-6. And also the number, uh, the percentage of basically activated CD4 cells that were CD4 positive, CD25 positive, FOXP3 positive cells greater than 6%. That showed that subset who had those two biomarkers had an 83% remission rate. Again, suggesting how data in the future may go into some decision making that you make. Uh, in this study from Canada, no, this is a study of, actually yesterday I went to a great grand rounds at UT Southwestern Rheumatology Department. Um, fellow Dr. Komal Patel did a great presentation on uh, unmet needs um, in, in rheumatology, and, and she uh, prompted this tweet. And the question is, how many PCPs are out there prescribing DMARDs? and treating our patients. We know we can't take care of everybody. We don't have the numbers. It's a significant manpower problem now and in the future in rheumatology. I think I have a tweet later on about that. But right now in the United States, there's almost 500,000, there's 494,000 primary care doctors. And the research is pretty clear. About 30% um, will refill um, uh, DMARDs uh, and even biologic DMARDs in a lesser number. But They'll refill them. But the number who will initiate a DMART or through surveys are confident in managing DMARTs is only 6 to 9%. That's not very much. Um, and certainly doesn't, is not going to make up the deficits that we have in, um, in manpower uh, in treating musculoskeletal disease in the future. So we really need to invest in education of a primary care sector. We need to invest in nurse practitioners and physician assistants who can expand our services. To not do this, to not accept this to, is a gigantic mistake for the discipline and for the population as a whole. The OA initiative has a lot of different studies. Um, they showed that those who walk for exercise had significantly less knee pain and overall less progression of the x-rays, uh, especially as far as medial knee joint space narrowing. Um, so we do encourage exercise, obviously, but if you're worried that exercise might make them worse or might worsen their x-rays, this data from the osteoarthritis initiative says, nope, it will not. Um, Gamut, we know that interferon is important, and alpha interferon is a big player in autoimmune disease, especially in lupus. You know, that's what anaphrolamab is targeting is alpha interferon. Well, um, in this particular study, they looked at uh, a cohort of RA patients, and they found that an, an, uh, an interferon gene signature was seen in half of the RA patients. And a high gene signature, high interferon signature was associated with higher DAS, less ULR good responses, 
higher alpha interferon levels overall. So again, alpha interferon is a big player. We're not specifically targeting that very well, maybe to some extent with our jacks uh, or tick inhibitors in the future. Um, but it you know, is in, important in driving uh, epigenetic changes, lymphocyte activation, you know, uh, exciting accessory cells, cytokine production. Alpha interferon probably should be a player in RA therapy, and that needs reconsideration. Uh, cardiovascular risk in patients with ankylosing spondylitis was, or axial spondylitis was studied in 450 patients, um, half of whom were taking TNF inhibitors. And it was shown that TNF inhibitors did, those who were on TNF inhibitors had an overall reduced cardiovascular risk. But when you adjusted for sedrate CRP, that risk went away. It was still significantly, like it was a big trend down, hazard ratio 0.37 but the confidence intervals crossed over 1 to 1.12. So a reduced cardiovascular risk is seen in patients on TNF, but it may not specifically be due to TNF inhibitors alone. But then again, it might be. So we need larger studies. And we have data showing that TNF inhibitors do reduce cardiovascular risk in RA, especially when they're used for a long period of time. Maybe this is a time factor. Maybe this is not necessarily something specific to spondylitis patients. Uh, the question is, can you use biologics and new therapies in pregnancy? You know, there's the ACR reproductive guidelines. If you haven't spent an evening with that, you know, print it out, read it instead of, you know, your usual uh, spy novel uh, or throw it in, in, your, in, your, in your purse and take it on your next flight and read it. It's gigantically chock full of important data. But what does it say about jack inhibitors in pregnancy? And it says, and right now I'm going to tell you it's not safe because we basically because we don't have enough data um, in animal studies and you know sort of the preclinical studies that's in the package inserts with these drugs show that they are fetotoxic at high doses, doses we don't usually do. They are also teratogenic at high doses. Again, may not be germane. We do know these these molecules do cross the placenta. We do know they show up in breast milk. ACR guidelines address this by basically saying they have no position because there's no evidence that we can make a decision about at this point. Review of the literature has shown that there's at least 47 tofacitinib patients being treated for rheumatic causes and about 15 ulcerative colitis patients treated with uh, tofacitinib where the outcomes there were pretty much as you'd expect from the population. No higher risk of malformations, you know, a small number, probably like 15% or so of either preterm births or miscarriages or something like that, but really no significant standout toxicity. So if your patients were exposed to it, would I stop the drug? No, I probably wouldn't, but, um, but I don't think you can go in saying you can treat, uh, let patients get pregnant and be exposed to a JAK inhibitor um, until we see more data. And I'm sure that given the numbers of patients that are out there, I think there's a registry that's looking at this, we'll see more data. Um, I put a tweet up showing you that the Gloria study from uh, Martin Bors was studied this past week in ARD. To remind you, these are RA patients over 65 who either receive placebo or 10 milligrams of prednisolone for two years. While there was a small advantage in efficacy, a dash 28 less of minus 0.32, I'm going to say, and an x-ray advantage of minus 1.7 sharp units. So that's a small benefit. Actually, that's minus 0.37 dash um, being lower. 
Um, there was a toxicity advantage, 24% more adverse events, most of those being non-serious infections like URIs and things like that. There, were, uh, there was a significant um, lowering, a small lowering of lumbar BMD, and those are on prednisolone for two years. So again, what do you want to do here? Do you want to give more steroids or less steroids? Does this scare you? Does this help you? It's up to you. Look at the report. It's an ARD. Um, MMWR came out with a report on monkeypox. I know every one of you are waiting for monkeypox data. And finally, it's arrived. 19 cases from nine states. Someone tweeted me back or messaged me back. Is this really an outbreak? You know, like, um, I think actually there were more states than there were cases. But the point is that... Um, uh, these tend to occur in endemic areas, but now they're occurring in the United States. So these reports were ones from the United States and that you should be aware of, as you know, monkeypox um, shows up with skin lesions and fever and adenopathy, um, pretty distinctive, um, uh, popular, um, almost blister-like lesions in some patients. Uh, it's worth considering because uh, it's now showing up. Uh, a nice report about gout and it's under treatment. You know, this uh, particular article looked at the population of over 100,000 gout patients, only 29%, this is like claims data, I guess, only showed 29% had been on, uh, were initiated urate lowering therapy within the first 12 months of diagnosis. Uh, and over time, from 2004 to 2020, the number of ULT initiations rose from 27% to um, 35% in 2020. Um, but the numbers of people achieving, you know, the target um, uh, uh, uric acid level of less than 300 micromoles or less than six milligrams per liter was uh, like you know, only 17%, um, 36% if it was a higher um, number. Uh, the point is that Again, gout continues to be undertreated in spite of new drugs, in spite of guidelines and position papers. It's abominable, and it's up to us to fix. COVID, as you know, can give rise to some strange things in arthritis, and there's a, a collection of patients who develop reactive arthritis, uh, meaning they must have had synovitis. Um, and this comes from 22 articles, 25 patients, equally split between males and females, average age 45, most presenting as oligoarthritis. Um, and uh, what else? It occurs within um, six to 48 days of the onset of COVID. Most were treated with steroids, a few treated with sulfasalazine. 22 of the 25 improved, and resolution was seen in 16 out of the 25. So it's just like reactive arthritis, it, you know, oligoarthritis, the last for a few days, comes in following infection. Or was this just all vaccine-related? No, no, I'm sorry. It, this was not vaccine patients. Or, or was this just reactive arthritis? They didn't um, B27 type these patients. But anyway, something to be aware of. Uh, so the question I have is, how often do RA patients see rheumatologic care? A study from, I think this is from... Um, British Columbia, 50,000 RA patients, 58% saw a rheumatologist yearly for five years. If they were over age 65, um, they, were more, and they were more likely to be on DMARDs in 82% of the cases. But if they were not, and then if they're seen by a rheumatologist, 
right? But if they're not seen by a rheumatologist, DMAR use was only 31%. So if not under rheumatologic care, not a good idea. At least in British Columbia, it looks like half their patients were getting in to see a rheumatologist at some point. That's encouraging. Um, worse retention with rheumatologists, meaning they were less likely to see the rheumatologist yearly if they were over age 80, male, lower socioeconomic group, and if the rheumatologist was a white-haired old fart like me, meaning an older rheumatologist was less likely to retain the RA patient in ongoing care than a younger rheumatologist. Well, I take that as a personal insult. I'm going to have to try harder. I think I'm going to have to dye my hair um, and maybe start wearing groovy clothing. Might that help? Who knows? The FDA approved a new biosimilar for another biosimilar for rituximab. This one's called rituximab-ARRX. Trade name from Amgen is called Riabni, R-I-A-B-N-I. It's for use in patients with RA along with methotrexate. Riabni is also approved uh, December 2024 B-cell, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, B-cell leukemias. Uh, MPA and GPA, so uh, another rituximab is out there. I think this is the third one in the market. Uh, I think this is a really interesting report. I think this came from JAMA. Price annual price increases in drugs. The price of a newly launched drug was two was an a mean of two thousand fifteen dollars per year in two thousand eight. By twenty twenty one, the price of a newly launched drug was one hundred and eighty thousand. Whoa. So, you know, the number of people, number of drugs in 2008 that were costing more than 150000 a year was only 9%. But by 2021, it was half, 47%. Obviously, this great increase in the cost of drugs was dominated by drugs, biologic drugs, drugs for rare disease. And they said non-oncology drugs, which I'm not sure what that is. I would think oncology drugs, but that's what it said. Uh, as you know, last week, uh, uh, baricitinib was FDA-approved for use in alopecia areata. It's the first systemic treatment for alopecia. Uh, so approval is based on two double-blind randomized controlled trials, wherein 35% or so of patients receiving baricitinib, 4 milligrams a day, regrew their scalp, their, their, their scalp hair by week 36. It's the same warnings for baricitinib, for RA, uh, and all the other JAK inhibitors, including some of the newer worrisome uh, risks of cancer and cardiovascular risk. Baricitinib um, closes out this report with a report, I think this was actually from, what was published, 10 patients with systemic sclerosis who received baricitinib, and they showed a significant um, improvement in modified Rodman skin score. It dropped um, almost 11.5 points. Three out of the four patients who had digital ulcers that we uh, had healing of digital ulcers by week 24. Um, and they, in a parallel group of studies, they showed that when you give baricitinib to an animal model, bleomycin-induced scleroderma, they showed the same sort of corrective changes. Um, I think it was about a year ago, either at ACR or ULAR, we did a cohort study that showed you tofacitinib had benefits in patients with systemic sclerosis. I wish someone would hurry up and do a good trial in systemic sclerosis with a JAK inhibitor. Maybe we'll see that soon. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Tell your friends. Don't forget, if you have a question, ask Kush anything. Click the box on the email or the website. We'll talk about your case, your question here on the podcast. Take good care. Be safe.